Welcome to this edition of Forecast Direct. We're very pleased to have with us uh, Professor Robert Gordon from Northwestern University. Uh, Professor Gordon is a macroeconomist who focuses on unemployment, inflation, and long-run growth and uh, long-run labor productivity. Uh, he has written several books, uh, you know, the most recent being The Rise and Fall of American Growth, uh, and we'll be talking to him today about long-run growth uh, in the U.S. and prospects uh, for, uh, for growth in the coming decades. Thanks very much for being with us, Professor Gordon. Glad to be here. So in your book, Rise and Fall of American Growth, you talk about the great innovations that led to faster economic growth during the last century. Can you walk us through what those were uh, and why they led to faster growth? Well, two of them by coincidence happened within 10 weeks of each other. Uh, in, on uh, a few weeks before Christmas of 1879, Thomas Edison invented the electric light. Uh, and uh, within three years, the first electric power station was in operation in Manhattan. Uh, and of course, electricity uh, revolutionized everything. Uh, it took time, uh, but uh, in addition to light, of course, we had uh, machinery in manufacturing and in the services, the invention of electric refrigeration, uh, the whole range of home appliances. Um, and uh, roughly speaking, you can say that it took about uh, 40 years from 1880 to uh, 1920 for the effects of electricity to begin to be felt. And then a complete transformation occurred, uh, rocketing productivity growth in manufacturing in the 1920s, the invention of kitchen appliances, which uh, took until the 1950s to become uh, really common. Uh, the other invention within the same uh, quarter of the year occurred in October 1879, and that was uh, uh, Benz's uh, invention of the first working efficient internal combustion engine, which uh, took about 20 years to perfect into the first automobiles. In the year 1900, there were only 4,000 motor vehicles in the United States, but by 1929, there were 26 million. So that was a period of enormous change, uh, getting rid of the horse and all the droppings on the streets and replacing them with motor vehicles that could go uh, much faster, carry bigger loads and be more efficient. Uh, other inventions of the late 19th century, there are almost too many to count, uh, but start with the telegraph, 1844, the telephone, 1876, uh, chemicals, plastics, uh, and you had a complete alteration in uh, the way businesses operated, what they produced, how they produced them, and how people lived. Uh, along with all these uh, inventions made in the private sector of uh, the economy, at the same time, you had a burst of spending on infrastructure, in particular, urban water and sewer infrastructure. Uh, in 1870, most people had to rely on an outhouse. By 1929, uh, the great majority of urban Americans had indoor bathrooms, uh, not too different than the ones uh, we have today, perhaps with bathtubs instead of showers, uh, but otherwise very similar. Uh, so as a result of these inventions, we had an unprecedented period of rapid productivity growth between 1920 and 1970, the 50 years 
1920 to 1970, the average rate of productivity growth in the United States economy was 3% a year for 50 years. Compare that, the productivity growth rate uh, since 1970 until now uh, is about 1.4%. And for the last decade, for the whole economy, it's only about 0.6, uh, 0.7 of 1%. Uh, so an enormous slowing down after a uh, extremely fruitful period. Uh, we can talk later about uh, what went wrong and why things have been so slow lately. So do you think the innovations of this era, computers, smartphones, medical technology, in the same way it took a while for electricity you know, to, to really get off the ground and start having an impact, do you think the, the innovations of this era are likely to be, to be similar? They might affect uh, growth going forward similar to the way that, that you know, these innovations you talked about did so you know, a century ago. Well, let's divide up the computer age into two parts. One is the uh, part that uh, was developed during the 70s and 80s and came to fruition in the 1990s uh, with the personal computer, with the ever uh, faster mainframe computers, uh, with the invention of the internet and the transition of every office and every business from typewriters and paper to flat screens and the internet uh, with everything stored uh, in computer memories instead of in filing cabinets. That first uh, part of the computer revolution is often called the third industrial revolution or the digital revolution. And it brought with it a revival of productivity growth from the slow pace of the 70s and 80s uh, to a relatively rapid uh, two and a half to three percent a year during the single decade between 1995 and 2005. Uh, but unlike the earlier revolution uh, where 3% productivity growth lasted for 50 years, this time it only lasted for 10 years. Uh, and uh, most businesses now are doing their day-to-day -day operations with flat screens and uh, all the information stored uh, now in the cloud but stored on a computer somewhere, uh, very much the same as they did in uh, 2005. Uh, what's happened since 2005, uh, you mentioned medical technology that's been ongoing, not just in the last decade, but at the last uh, hundred years uh, that we've had uh, the gradual improvements made possible by uh, the invention of the X-ray antibiotics, uh, CAT scans, MRIs, and the invention of treatments that make it uh, much less likely that people will die at any given age of heart disease or cancer. Uh, in the last uh, 15 years, we've had the invention of smartphones uh, and social networks. And what they've done is bring an enormous amount of consumer surplus uh, to everyday people of the world, not just Americans, that are not really counted in productivity. They haven't changed the way businesses uh, conduct their day-to-day -day affairs that much. What they've done is changed the lives of citizens um, in a way that's not counted in GDP and not counted in productivity. Uh, we've had that idea of consumer welfare being boosted in a way that's not counted in GDP uh, before uh, many times with, for instance, the invention of communication uh, through the telephone, the invention of uh, uh, indoor bathrooms, uh, completely changing the standard of everyday life, uh, and the invention of television in the uh, early post-war era, uh, bringing uh, motion and sound entertainment into the living room. Uh, 
the amount of time people spend with social networks and other things they do with their smartphones is perhaps greater than in any of these earlier inventions. Um, and it's possible that the, the amount of consumer welfare we're getting relative to GDP uh, may be growing at an unprecedented rate, although that's now being spread out over the last uh, 13 years, I guess it is, since the invention of the first iPhone. So what do you think are the, the main headwinds to growth that we face today? There are many, uh, and I discuss some of them, uh, some of them in my book. Uh, one of the first is that the support for productivity growth over that 50 year period uh, was supported in part by the spread of education. Uh, at the turn of the 20th century, only about 10% of people had completed high school. Uh, that reached 85% by 1970. And so progress in extending high school education to the whole population was, uh, was more or less over uh, 50 years ago. Then, of course, we've had the gradual improvement in the percent of people who go to college, but that's at a very slow pace and has peaked out at about 30% uh, for four-year colleges and about 40% for all uh, post-secondary uh, education. A big problem is that 40% uh, of college graduates, when they leave their four-year college, cannot find a job that requires a college education. And that was true before the pandemic. That's not in any way related to the uh, particular difficulties of the past year. Uh, so that's one uh, of the uh, major headwinds. Uh, other uh, headwinds uh, include uh, the uh, reduction in immigration uh, that uh, has occurred in the last uh, half decade uh, compared to uh, previously. We've had uh, much of our innovation has come from uh, people born in foreign countries or the offspring of people born in uh, foreign countries. Uh, and uh, as you know, many of the uh, top uh, firms in information technology, uh, leading off with Google, uh, were founded by uh, foreign uh, immigrants. Uh, so those are just two. Um, a, a headwind that seems less important now uh, is the so-called fiscal headwind of uh, rising debt. Uh, we've got lots of rising debt, but not much trouble paying for it because interest rates are so low. And in turn, interest rates are low in part because productivity growth is so low and the economy has been growing uh, so slowly. So I'll just start with those uh, as some of the headwinds. So what about what's going on in the rest of the world and how that might contribute to US growth? Right, so we've seen education catch up uh, in other parts of the country, other parts of the world. Uh, that are contributing to innovation. Uh, we've seen a savings glut uh, in, in the world that is helping uh, keep interest rates low. What do you think in terms of how much the world uh, can help US uh, economic growth? Do you think there is a prospect for that to be able to accelerate how fast we grow uh, in the coming years? Well, of course, uh, as other countries develop, uh, they're making some of the inventions themselves uh, that are spilling over to the United States, either in borrowed technology or in 
directly in the form of imports. Uh, many of our uh, electronic products, starting with the iPhone, after all, are made in foreign countries and are imported to the US, even if the software is developed largely uh, in the United States. I'd say it's really a uh, two-edged sword. Uh, while the increasing percent of the rest of the world that's educated uh, is meaning that uh, increasing numbers of innovations are occurring elsewhere and are making their way to the United States indirectly. We also have the fact that the globalization of the world economy has caused more and more of US manufacturing to be offshore, to be moved to other countries, including not just China, but also Mexico. Uh, and that has helped to hollow out many jobs uh, in the middle. Uh, the, the high paying union level jobs in manufacturing uh, have been decimated in the last 30 years. Uh, starting in the late 1970s and then accelerating after the year 2000. Um, and that's uh, reduced the standard of living of many people in the middle. Now, it's very hard to distinguish between two causes of the decline in manufacturing uh, good paying jobs. Uh, one is imports and the competition from abroad. Uh, and the other is automation, uh, which of course is nothing new, but has been going on ever since of the dawn of the first industrial revolution uh, back in the late 18th century. So this pandemic has accelerated technological adoption. We've seen companies shift to using Zoom. We've seen remote working be fairly successful. Uh, we've seen the rise of remote learning and teaching. We've seen telehealth. Um, you've talked in your book about urbanization and agglomeration economies, how these increase productivity. Do you see a role for remote working, remote learning, uh, remote health uh, to do the same thing now? You know, in a, in a broad sense, uh, this, the shift to remote learning has got to improve productivity uh, because we're getting the same amount of output, but we're doing it without public transit, without commuting, without office buildings, without all the uh, goods and services that go with the office buildings, like uh, the restaurants, the convenience stores in downtowns. And so we can produce the output that, co that uh, is produced at home and then transmits to the rest of the economy electronically, uh, whether it's a uh, insurance claim uh, or a medical consultation. Uh, we're producing what people really care about uh, with a lot less input, less input of office buildings and less input of uh, public transportation. But those things are included in GDP uh, and uh, if we had a correct uh, accounting of uh, GDP, we would uh, count what people do at home as output, but we would not include commuting time, which is not pleasant. It's done only for an, a purpose of something else. Uh, and we would call uh, commuting time an intermediate good, just as steel is an intermediate good in the manufacture of an automobile. So in a, in a profound sense, the movement to working at home is going to make everybody more productive who is capable of working at home. Of course, this leaves out uh, a lot of the rest of the economy. It's going to create severe uh, costs of adjustment uh, in just two of the parts of the economy I mentioned, commercial real estate and uh, public transportation. And uh, in the short run, uh, there's going to be a great reduction in productivity 
in say public transportation if we take their revenues uh, corrected for inflation divided by the number of hours of work of employees in public transportation whose uh, street car, whose uh, buses and uh, railroad trains are largely empty. Uh, so it's a it's an interesting question. Uh, I think we're going to see a period of uh, considerable growth in the overall productivity statistics that already started in the second and third quarters. Uh, and this is because uh, we've had a tremendous change in the composition of the labor force. The high paid people are working at home and are still making the same income. It's the low paid people who have uh, disproportionately account for the loss of employment. Uh, in December, US employment was nine and a half million lower than it had been in February. Uh, and so uh, those people are disproportionately low wage. So you take uh, the people who are being compensated now and divided by hours, you've gotten a big jump as the composition has changed away from low wage uh, workers. And that's affected not just measured productivity, but also measured compensation per hour and measured average uh, hourly earnings. Uh, in terms of digging out the fundamentals of what's happening in, to productivity, uh, that's going to be tough because of this uh, change in composition away from low wage uh, employment. There's quite a bit of optimism that machine learning, artificial intelligence, green technology like electric cars, carbon capture, batteries, uh, an investment boom around infrastructure, the internet of things, that these will fuel higher growth at least through the coming decade. These might not revolutionize our lifestyle the way electrification and indoor plumbing and, and combustion engines did uh, in the last decade, but do you, do you think that they'll lead to faster growth in the short run uh, like we saw uh, in this period in the, the late 90s and early 2000s with the dot-com boom? Well, when we talk about faster growth, let's, let's be clear, we're talking about uh, faster productivity growth. Uh, if we go back to the forecast that I made in my book uh, now six years ago that I made the forecast, five years ago the book was published, uh, I forecast over the next uh, 25 years that productivity growth would be 1.2%. Uh, it's only been 0.6% uh, in the uh, years between 2010 and 2019. Uh, so we've got a lot of catching up to do. But just for that reason alone, I would expect us to, and remember I'm talking about the total economy when I make statements about productivity growth. Uh, the numbers that you read in the media for the non-farm private economy are always slightly higher because productivity growth in the government as we measure it uh, and in private households is uh, virtually uh, not growing at all. Uh, but if we, uh, if we look out to the next decade, just the catching up from the extraordinarily slow pace of the past decade uh, would give us a sizable boost. Uh, to, to meet my own forecast of five years ago, productivity growth would have to speed up from the 0.6 I mentioned up to one and a half percent or slow. And that, uh, that provides a lot of room for uh, innovations that are well underway uh, to make a difference. We all know, for instance, that electric cars have far fewer moving parts than internal combustion cars. Uh, and so just by the very nature of the beast, uh, once we make a, a total transition from internal combustion to electric vehicle manufacture, uh, we're gonna get a $30,000 car made for a lot less input of hours of work. 
uh, <clears throat> uh, I'm a little skeptical on the Internet of Things. I, I fail to see the uh, benefit of having a camera inside my refrigerator to tell me what I'm about to run out of. Uh, my refrigerator is not arranged in a way that I could tell. Uh, and uh, on the issue of artificial intelligence, I think we've, uh, <clears throat> we tend to exaggerate that as a revolution that's suddenly going to be around the corner and create uh, light and day uh, change in productivity because we've had uh, the development of artificial intelligence uh, step by step for at least the last 20 or 25 years. Uh, everything from <clears throat> voice recognition uh, where you're, <clears throat> at least my doctor uh, used to uh, hire a transcriber to transcribe uh, notes from the computer. Uh, then there's a voice transcriber. Uh, we've got automatic language translation. You've got customer service humans being replaced by voice recognition technology uh, that makes it almost impossible to talk to a human when you dial a customer service. Uh, you've got Amazon uh, examining your book orders and telling you what you are likely to be interested in reading next. Uh, all that is a form of artificial intelligence that's uh, become very common. We've got legal searches being done by computers. We've got radiology diagnostics being done by computers. Uh, and uh, that's been going on for some time. <clears throat> so um, I'm skeptical that there's a night and day revolution uh, in store. I think all of these things that I've been mentioning will add up. Uh, and uh, of everything that we've talked about, it's very possible that, that the transition to working at home uh, once we've got the rest of the economy sorted out, uh, will uh, give us a uh, sizable uh, jump in uh, the annual growth of productivity. I would fully expect growth in the decade of the 2020s uh, to be higher than it was in the 2010s, uh, not as fast as it was between two, 1995 and 2005. Um, but I think that was... Uh, an extraordinary coming together of a lot of technology in a very short uh, amount of time. The final question, from a policy perspective, what could we do as a country to accelerate growth and make it more equal? I would start with the very beginning with preschool education. We have an enormous vocabulary gap now at age five between children whose parents went to college uh, between children that, where both the parents are living in the home, uh, down to the much smaller development of voca vocabulary at, <clears throat> uh, among children who grow up in poverty, often with a single parent. Uh, and so uh, I'm all for uh, a massive program of preschool education. Uh, if money is scarce, rather than bring uh, education to three and four-year-olds, to everyone in the middle class, I would spend that money getting it down as low as age six months uh, for the poverty population. I think that would make a, a tremendous difference. Uh, there's been an awful lot of economic research on how to bridge the, uh, the gap of education and upward mobility uh, between those that are lucky enough to have two college-educated parents uh, who are very likely to wind up in the top 20% of the income distribution uh, versus those who, want, who grow up with a single parent living in poverty who are very much likely to wind up in the bottom 
of the income distribution. There are a lot of brains in that bottom 20% who with a more enlightened system of preschool and elementary education, uh, including uh, charter schools and other ways of singling out low-income children and giving them individual attention uh, that would uh, lead to a, a much better educated, more productive society. Uh, not immediately, of course, the children have got to grow up. Uh, but if we look out to see what our society is going to be like 20 years from now, uh, that would be the place I would start. Uh, I would also uh, open up immigration. I would use the example of Canada, where uh, close to 1% of the population uh, immigrates every year. For us, that would be 3 million people instead of less than 1 million. Um, I would introduce a immigration policy such as that used in Canada, Britain, uh, now with it, they're out of the common market, and Australia, where you grade potential immigrants with a certain number of points uh, based on their education, their language ability, their ability to speak uh, English or maybe Spanish, and their uh, skills for employment. Um, and uh, we could bring an awful lot of the skilled people from the rest of the world in to bolster our inventiveness and our, uh, our productivity. Uh, immigration needs to be loosened up in every direction from the H-1B uh, visa, the, the uh, tech workers to come to Silicon Valley or somewhere else now that they can work remotely, uh, the farm workers uh, that are needed to come in uh, to, to collect the crops and the harvest, uh, the summer teenagers that are uh, needed to work in summer resorts, uh, all sorts of reasons for both permanent and temporary immigration. Uh, so uh, I would start there. And uh, of course the push for preschool education would extend to uh, a conscious effort to uh, find ways of improving the outcomes for underrepresented minorities in various kinds of high wage education. Uh, going out and looking for candidates, uh, subsidizing uh, magnet schools and high, uh, high skill schools. I, I think uh, uh, despite the vote in California against affirmative action, I'm a big fan of affirmative action because I think uh, it's the only way we really have of taking those who are disadvantaged uh, and tilting the playing field a bit in their favor uh, when we consider all of the advantages of uh, the people who are lucky enough to grow up with the pair of college educated parents. So those are just a few of the policy areas that I would, uh, that I would go in and that's, that's for the long run. Uh, that doesn't involve any of the debate over uh, Biden's latest stimulus plan or the, late, the stimulus uh, just passed into law a month ago. Thank you so much, Professor Gordon. That was insightful. And I'm uh, hopeful that we'll be able to have, uh, as you mentioned, faster, more equitable growth uh, during these next several decades. Uh, good to be here. Thanks very much.